I'm telling you, I used to use the word incompetent. Now I just call them stupid. I went to an Ivy League school. I'm very highly educated. I know words. I have the best words. Yeah, maybe. All right. Um, you're listening to, I don't, I don't know what we're going to call this. I think I'm going to call it the best words podcast because I have the best words. Nobody has better words than me. I have the best words in the universe. But anyway, so um, I'm Kevin. I'm an econ and poli-sci student at the University of Rochester. If you're listening to this, you probably know me anyways. But um, let's go next to Jose. Hi, I'm Jose. I am here to uh, uh, fulfill our affirmative action quota. Uh, I'm uh, econ, history, poli-sci major here at the U of R. Former president of the College of Republicans. Oh, God. That's not what it sounds like. You didn't ask this. Those are the only interesting things about me. <laughs> the only ones. All right, Warish. Hello, I'm Warish. I'm a junior, biomedical engineering, minor in health psychology. I doubt I'll be applying any of that in this podcast. So, <laughs> so that's that's me. Um, hey, my name is Mike. I'm also a junior at the University of Rochester, double majoring in data science and business, so probably not much applicable to the podcast. But I'm here today to make amazing jokes, or when jokes, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, a fun fact about me, I'm on both college Democrats and college Republicans, because <laughs> how else would you learn the political environment of the U.S.? Field to, to hack it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Field decentralized. is also too modest. He's a world champion debater. <laughs> <laughs> um all right we should should probably start talking about actual stuff now so um immigration jose all right right so um the door is that way <laughs> so so just this evening the trump or no the supreme court uh ruled that the trump administration can bar um asylum seekers from seeking asylum in the U.S. if they haven't, like, been denied asylum in, in Mexico, um, where, like, previously a lot of Central American like, asylum seekers were going through Mexico to the U.S. Um, uh, all right, so what, what do you guys think of that? What do you think of that ruling? Is Mexico safe mm-hmm. enough for these people? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the first question that comes to my mind. That's, that's where I think it gets interesting, is that, like, um, I think that you have to look at why these migrants are going north, right? Because mm-hmm. when you look at Central America, like there's the Northern Triangle, and that's a lot, that's a very unsafe place, right? Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, less so, but still, those places have like very high crime rates, right? But mm-hmm. it, when you look at Central America and you go south to Costa Rica, that's an, a place that's very safe. The murder rate is um, lower than the US. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know exactly. It's yeah, lower it than a lot of parts. Yeah, yeah. Like four yeah a lot. It's lower than a lot of parts of the U.S. Definitely, um, but you don't really see these migrants going to say Panama or Costa Rica, despite these being like very safe countries, right? Um, and I just think that's interesting because like a lot of the stated rationales for what was this Amanda. Um, we can we can get this shit. I'm sure. All right, we got we got another. Sorry, sorry. We got I went all the way to Spurrier. <laughs> oh whoa. Um. Yeah, you should probably. Oh yeah, come over here. That's that's good. We'll just edit this shit. Um, So this is Amanda. You want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Amanda. I am a queer woman of color. I identify as Asian, I guess. Um, I grew up. I grew up in Hong Kong. Um, am currently a junior at the University of Rochester. I am a math major. Unfortunately, um, and I'm minoring in legal studies. I think that's about it for now. All right, that's good. Unfortunately, you're. 
a math major. All right. Yes. And, um, oh, and then I guess also something about us is that uh, we pretty much all met through the debate union here. Um, Jose quit, but... Oh, wow. Call <laughs> <laughs> Wow. No, no, that's good. Jose's still a debater at heart. All right. Um, yeah, so yeah, so all liability falls on the debate union and not on us personally. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how this whole thing like, came together. But, um, yeah, yeah, let's get back to immigration now. So, yeah, yeah what I think is interesting is that, um, like, most of the rationale that I see, at least from people on the left, uh, like AOC or whoever, is that, like, the migrants are leaving because of the crime rate specifically, right? Because they think that they're unsafe in the countries that they're in and they want to go to a safer country. And, like, I think that's at least part of it, but um, I think that if it, that was like the whole rationale for why people migrate, then you would see at least as much migration to say Belize, Panama, Costa Rica, when those because those countries are like very safe, right? Maybe not quite as safe as the U.S. as a whole, but definitely safer than parts of it like Baltimore, <laughs> St. Louis, Detroit. Um, those are less safe than like Panama or Costa Rica, um, and then like also those countries do speak Spanish, right? So that's like if you're I don't know if I was leaving the U.S. because, like, there's a, I don't know, I feel unsafe or whatever. I would probably be going to, like, Canada and not to Mexico. Because the because cartels are forcing your <laughs> kids into them because you have no other choice but to leave. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, like the language similarity mm-hmm. is very important, right? Mm-hmm. So then if those migrants are coming to the U.S., which is, like, it's a much harder journey to go all the way through Mexico and then there's the language barrier and all of that, there has to be some unstated reason. Right. And I think that's probably just the economic disparity. Right. Like um, the U.S. is a much richer country than Panama or Costa Rica, even though it's about as safe, really, if you look at it, at it as a whole, like with murder rates. Um, and I just think that it's interesting that like that rationale never really comes up. Yeah, I think I would tend to agree. Um, it, it, like I, I wouldn't call it an econ- I mean, it literally is an economic disparity, but I think I would call it the promise of a better future. And I think that as a narrative is really important to people immigrating. Like my parents were immigrants in like the, my dad was an immigrant in like the seventies. And it's like, oh yeah, China was like fucking <laughs> post-revolution China. You know, everyone was starving. It was a shitty time. Everyone experienced, not everyone, but like our family experienced like backbreaking poverty. And the only reason they were like, let's go to America was because there was this narrative of like, there we will find a future. There is a place where you can pull your pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I think that narrative is really important when we think about the, I guess, the causes and the reasons why people choose to immigrate. Because I think a lot of that comes from a, a more emotional place of, like, belief. Um, yeah, I mean, what else would, like, push you to walk, like, thousands of miles up on a journey that might lead you to death, if not emotions? Mm-hmm. It's probably not, like, calculus of oh, my salary will be, like, three times bigger if I immigrate to the US, but more of, like, oh, crap, my <laughs> life now is, like, so dangerous that I might as well just go on this journey to the promise of the better future. To the promised land. <laughs> to the promised land. Like, just beat yourself over the... Beat <laughs> <laughs> yourself over the promised wall. <laughs> Plus, a lot of it is with the traffickers. You, so you pay them, like, a exorbitant amount of money, and then they're like, oh, I promise I'll take you right to the border. Like, you know, trust me, everything will be fine. And all the traffickers and smugglers, they're aiming up, not aiming down. Aiming up, you mean like to towards the US? The US yeah. 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 I'm just interested in, in like more of why that is, right? Because those mm-hmm. human traffickers are responding to basically a market demand, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're only taking people north because people want to go there more than they want to go south to Costa Rica or Panama, etc. Um, you know, I just, 
I'm not like disputing the safety thing exactly. I'm just saying that like I find I find it interesting that the safety rationale is brought up so much more, at least in my mind, <coughs> from what I see. When it like if you look at it objectively, the safety rationale from like the U.S. to Mexico, it makes a lot less sense than the economic rationale, right? Like the murder, the difference in the murder rate between the U.S. and Mexico is not that big. It's like Mexico is 50% more murders per capita, I think, versus the like difference between Mexico and Honduras is at least four times or so. Like it's a much bigger difference, but people are willing to go not just like to Mexico, but all the way through Mexico to the U.S., right? So I don't think that's exactly like justified just by the difference in the crime rates, even though it is there. Um, and like, my point is more that I think that it's interesting that the, like the economic put, like part of it, that you can make a lot more money with the same labor, like farm work in the U S than Mexico, that really doesn't get like get brought up that much, even though I think it's really important. Right. Um, I just like only see the security part of it. I, I don't think it's just that being poor and being unsafe makes you want to back up everything you've known and move to a place that you've never been to and never heard of or have any experience of whatsoever. I think there's lots of people who are like suffering right now, but stay put where they are and try to make things better. I think the degree of harm that they're being subjected to is sufficient enough. It's undeniable that they have to move and they're willing to risk all the things. They're willing to risk basically certain death or detainment or family separation and all these like awful things mm -hmm. because there's direct threats from things like cartels and like organized crime and organized violence. And to a certain degree, if you move to Panama, you're still able to be hurt by those groups, but not to the same degree that in a place with like much better rule of law, like the United States, where you have more legal protections and things, where it's harder to um, like shoot someone in the streets and get away with it mm -hmm. scot-free. Uh, yeah, I guess that would be true maybe for like the cartel specifically. Um, I don't know though, like Costa Rica, like it is a very safe place. Like I don't think that the cartels really have much influence there at all. Um, versus like, if you look at, I don't know, the real Rio Grande Valley, like the borderlands of the US specifically, the cartels do have some influence there. Maybe it's not the same cartels, like uh, those might be the, I don't know, the Sinaloa cartel or like the Mexican cartel specifically. And those are different from like MS-13. Um, but yeah, maybe it is like the cartel threat specifically that makes people move north. Mm -hmm. well, we thought of that. It's also important to mention that probably people, like individuals don't make the calculus of like moving north or south, but rather they see others moving north and they don't even question moving south. Because like, if you once again, you have smugglers who smuggle you to the south and you already have like, some experience you've heard of people going north and like succeeding then you might as well i guess but like well why did that start in the first place right it, i don't think it would just be random there ha would have to be some rationale for people deciding to move like north well, versus I, south, right? I feel like back then it doesn't need to be necessarily like the most rational but i think the power of narrative is still very very important like if you were to choose between say like actually, well, why don't we just do, like, Costa Rica or or the continental United States? It's like, okay, well, like, they probably are comparable in terms of, like, you know, safety. They're probably comparable in terms of getting away from cartels, if that's one of the issues that we're looking at, right? Like, but they're not comparable in the sense that you have an entire nation of people who, like, believe in this, like, American dream phenomenon that may or may not be actually true, right? Mm. But, like, 
it's been told to you through media, through the movies you consume, the, you know, the Hollywood, whatever. Streets, uh, what is it, plated with gold or whatever was like the old. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Or even just like the word on the street generally. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, America, let's go to America. Like, whatever. <laughs> right, things like that. I think, I think that, that is probably the driving force back then when it was more true that America mm-hmm. was a place of economic mobility. Well, I don't, I don't really agree with the media aspect or the American dream way of thinking about it. I think at just at the most basic grassroots level, it's, oh, I have family members who have, who go you regularly and work in the agriculture industry and then come back. So there's already a massive influx of seasonal workers right. who go in and there's this mass demand for agricultural workers mm-hmm. in California and so on. And then after harvesting season is over or planting season is over, they move back with the money they made. So with these people comes experiences of, oh, yeah, I've been, and it's like this, and they describe it to their family, who describe it to their family, and so on. Oh, so then it becomes... It's so, like a social network, but yeah. without like, yeah. Facebook. Yeah. You, yeah. you don't need to believe that America is a place where you'll become great and pull yourself up and all that. If you just know that, oh, if my... You, if you know that your family my, has done it. Yeah, my brother-in-law regularly like goes every year and comes back with some amount of money then it doesn't seem like as bad a place that you you ought or like i think that then the decision can be it wouldn't be that far to say that you can make the leap from saying like oh instead of being a seasonal worker i want to be there indefinitely Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. because many of these companies they employ these illegal immigrants specifically because they can just straight up underpay them they can abuse them wage yeah they can abuse them at will and they have no legal protections Mm -hmm. and they all they have to do is oh i'll threaten to deport you and they'll they'll take whatever pay they get yeah and i think that's also like something important to mention because like people do see like people see those kinds of things like the violations like of minimum wage or of labor protections in the u.s but what people really don't see is like what happens in guatemala or honduras or el salvador like to these people when they're uh like working on farms or whatever right um like probably like immigration still continues to the u.s because um like the information that's getting back is that hey this is still somewhat better than in the home country right even though it's really bad because like the conditions at home are so terrible right Mm -hmm. um like there are no media reports about the like backbreaking labor that guatemalan farmers have to do to just to subsist right like because economic conditions in that country are so bad there hasn't been industrialization the political institutions really prevent um, like economic growth from happening, technological innovation, et cetera, compared to in the US. Like those types of things really don't get talked about, um, which is um, kind of less my train of thought. Oh, oh, I think that like, I'm talking about that because like when we just purely talk about the uh, like safety um, like of these migrants in their home countries versus here, we don't really talk about like the economic reasons for why they come here. And then going off it, going off of that, we don't talk about why these immigrants like aren't actually hurting the U S economically. Like those arguments just stay like below the surface unchallenged in people's minds. Um, and that prevents like people from becoming more accepting of immigrants, which is why I think that's important. Um, but the current crisis is, you go ahead. Oh, I was just wondering if you could expand mm. on the, I guess, the position that like immigrants don't hurt the economy because I think oh yeah that's like probably a huge part of current discourse that needs to be yeah exactly that's kind of why yeah. I want to do this podcast you want to you're an expert on 
You're literally, literally uh, asking. No, no, no. I'm not even making. <laughs> I'm half joking. <laughs> I'm half to No, no, no. Jose does. Jose knows how to explain this really well. So, um, no pressure. Hmm? Well, I thought you were going to say. Well, I feel like I'm talking on... too much. Okay. You, I, I, I thought you were going to say he's an expert on immigration. Shut, shut the fuck up. <laughs> just, just, just say the things. Well, I mean, uh... so, so Jose, why, why do immigrants not hurt the U.S. economy? Why do they not take jobs? Why do they not drive down wages, etc.? Well, there are a few things. If you look at immigrants on average, they're more entrepreneurial than the average uh, American. So they're about twice as entrepreneurial as uh, the average American. Um, they lower prices in industries that are, are immigrant intensive. Wait, what's the metric for entrepreneurial? Like they start a startup. Yeah, uh, they uh, start up more firms. If you look at things like uh, Nobel laureates, for example, immigrants. Uh, are overrepresented there. The same is true for uh, billion-dollar firms. Uh, but most importantly, I think, uh, is uh, looking at uh, the share of uh, highly educated people in the workforce. So, for example, uh, a lot of uh, STEM PhDs are just dramatically uh, uh, overrepresented uh, with immigrants. Uh, so, for example, that's true in, like, economics, if you look at it. But so a lot of the uh, STEM programs see uh, far higher rates of uh, uh, immigration of, of immigrants getting that educational attainment, um, but yeah, they, you know, it, if you look at uh, George Borjas, who's like the most famous uh, skeptic of immigration and uh, economics, uh, who teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School, if you actually read his textbook, even his uh, uh, estimate of the immigration wage surplus, which is basically the effect of immigrants on uh, native wages, so mm -hmm. that is of just uh, Americans. Even he has a positive estimate. So even the most famous skeptic of uh, immigration in uh, the field is actually admitting that immigrants on average uh, increase the wages for Americans. So yeah, this is one of those areas where most economists uh, agree. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if you really are concerned about uh, things like crime, for example, one thing we know uh, that reduces uh, immigrant crime rates is legalization. Mm -hmm. If you just give them protection uh, for a rule of law, that ends up just dramatically mm -hmm. improving their outcomes. Uh, you know, if there are a lot of emerging papers on things like uh, the uh, risk of deportation and that uh, its effects on outcomes. So that's like significantly increases child poverty mm -hmm. and uh, worsens like mental health and stuff like that. So, you know, if, if the concerns are things like uh, crime, it's pretty easy to further, uh, you know, improve on those metrics, even though on average immigrants actually reduce crime rates. Um, so so my, prod, or I get, I have a question on the data. I also have a question on the data. Okay. <laughs> go ahead. Um, so to prod a little bit deeper, when you say immigrants broadly, does that include undocumented and documented immigrants? Oh, uh, yeah. Or yes to both. It includes both. Yeah. Okay. So is it like in your across the spectrum? Because I would assume that like people who immigrate legally on like H1B1 visa or like mm -hmm. on like specific yeah. visas would probably be more entrepreneurial than somebody who just like jumps over the wall. Alternatively, <laughs> the other way around where someone yeah. jumps over the wall has like this like brilliant like startup idea yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the actually, wall yeah. jumper. Yeah. Actually, um, yeah, uh, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a minute. So like, yeah, we know that like immigrants as a whole tend to be more highly skilled, more highly educated, more entre entrepreneurial. 
can't talk right. right now. Um, but uh, mm -hmm. what about like specifically the types of immigrants that we were talking about earlier, right? People from like the Northern Triangle, uh, they're generally like poor farmers, may or may not know how to read, um, generally very few skills, like compared to like those other immigrants who found like um, Fortune, 500, Fortune 500 firms. Uh, like what about those immigrants specifically? Do they hurt or help the U.S. economy? Well, actually, in the past decade, uh, most immigrants have actually come from India and China, not uh, Latin America. <laughs> but we only talk about the Latin American immigrants. But yeah, on average, you know, the median immigrant is not, uh, you know, a Ph.D., um, <laughs> you know, teaching at some university. But uh, so it's important to break down. Uh, you know, uh, high-skilled and low-skilled mm -hmm. immigration. Or yeah, I, I just want to talk specifically about low-skilled right now, right? Because, uh -huh. like, I don't think that they hurt the economy, but I want to, I want to like, tell people uh -huh. why, right? So we got to explain why do low-skilled immigrants help the U.S. economy specifically. Well, I, I went to Buffalo over the summer a mm -hmm. few times, and they have this... Um, they have this specific program. There's lots of refugees in Buffalo. It, it's, it's a haven for mm -hmm. refugees from, like, all over the world. And they have this program where they would put these refugees through a short entrepreneurship and training course, and then they would have a short-term lease over a communal commercial space. So this would be the West Side Bazaar. And yeah. within one area, there would be 10 different kinds of refugee-owned businesses. So that's them getting their feet wet, learning how to operate their business, how to market to customers, um, customer service and getting practical experience in doing so and the results from that one program alone are just staggering um, they basically everyone who's gone through that program has now an established franchising business that they started in there so it could be like clothes it could be food um, all sorts of things so in just being able to get off the ground and support themselves, even if they might need a little help getting started, whether that be like just lang overcoming the language barrier, for example, or developing some basic skills. After that, they they definitely have the what it takes mm -hmm. to not just employ themselves, but employ others and create economic value with their okay. communities. Yeah. So yeah, that is to say, we want to like push back a little bit on this idea that low skill means low value. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, that like people or the people that we would label as low skill actually do have a lot of skills that would be useful to the economy other than uh, you know like subsistence farming yeah, yeah like I, they would be able to very quickly learn how to adjust in a new environment or like you know fill in a niche that doesn't already exist yeah i think that's a really good point like um I don't know if you guys know who Tom Cotton is. He's a senator from oh, oh Zay knows. <laughs> He's a senator from Arkansas, um probably the most anti-immigrant uh, senator I know. Um, and he basically had a bill that would uh, like limit all low-skilled immigration and only have high-skilled immigration. And one, one funny part of that was that you would get like a bunch of uh, like bonus points. This is like a skill-based system, or I mean point-based system, right? So you get like a bunch of bonus points for being a uh, gold medal athlete from the Olympics. That's so <laughs> random. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sure. like, like, like some like some random track and field athlete. Oh, you can come in. <laughs> I I bet they would only do it for like uh, the uh, sports that mm -hmm. European immigrants do well, and not for those that like the Caribbean. <laughs> immigrants do well. Like, there's some exception for some reason. Uh, <laughs> there's an exception mean, well, the for athletes to be like athletes who gold medal in the Olympics. Except now you have to compete for USA, 
and then gold medal again, right? Like, isn't that the and no? It's basically yeah. a toothless part of the bill because someone who is a gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal exactly. qualifies for EB one or EB two yeah. pieces oh, that are like they're yeah, top like, of their field in something, and they have worldwide acclaim. That, that's, a, knows, that's a very good knows. candidate. Yeah, He's exactly. a top priority debater. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, on a more serious note, so getting back to that like buffer incubator experience, I don't feel like it's comparative enough. In a sense, uh, okay, you we're saying that with some training, even low-skill immigrants will succeed. However, with some training, we can also like uplift uh, lower economic communities in the US or like get people over the streets in the US. And mm-hmm. unless we like compare like how well people perform after this program was mm-hmm. they're like refugees or like native-born Americans who just, like, something went wrong with them. I don't think it's comparative. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to get with, uh, get to with the um, Tom Cotton thing, actually, because, like, there's a specific reason that immigrants as a whole are more entrepreneurial in, like, in the U.S. than citizens. It's not because, like, pe- people in those countries are more entrepreneurial in general, but you're having it. You're like, there's a selection effect there, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're yeah. in, you if you're to, in like, El- survive immigration. No, 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 not even that. But if you're in like El Salvador and you like see a business opportunity and you want to open a business, there are massive barriers like to that compared to the U.S. You have to pay off mm-hmm. the police, the government, the cartels, whoever else. There's a risk that your property is just going to be expropriated by any of those groups. Um, so like those those kinds of barriers, the lack of rule of law, etc., prevent people who would normally like be very successful business owners, see market opportunities. There was this really mm-hmm. good pizza place in Taka that got like <laughs> shut down because yeah. they didn't pay their protection. Money. Yeah, they didn't pay mm-hmm. their bribes. That's so sad. F. Wow. <laughs> F pay respects. Smash <laughs> <laughs> that up. Yeah. But yeah, so like, even if you're just taking the general population from any of those countries and taking them to the US, you're going to inevitably get a lot of like people who are actually like, uh, let's just say high skilled who are like going to make a lot of money um, when they just win it back in their own countries. Like I mean, you could take like my family as an example until 1850, they were potato farmers in Ireland yeah. and any knowledge that they had didn't matter for shit. Right? <laughs> right. Like, and then when they came here, it turned out that my grandpa or actually two of my grandpas were engineers. Um, and like that, those skills of being an engineer, those just wouldn't have mattered at all in their home countries. And the same is true of like plenty of refugees today from like the Northern Triangle is that they like have the potential to like be very high skilled, make lots of money, but just the specific institutions of their country stop them from doing that. So like when they come to the US, like uh, they just have much a much better chance of like contributing to the economy and um, like improving their livelihoods, right? But um. Well, I want to go back to the little skilled immigrants, like just for a second. Also, um, well, let's just like like take the worst case scenario, right? We're talking about like a ton of like farmers from Guatemala. They're coming to the U.S. I don't know. Let's say they they aren't starting businesses. Why are they still not harming the U.S. economy? Because I think there still is a reason there. Okay, this mm-hmm. is terrible. But like, <laughs> oh, if you if you think about it, like. If, if you're coming into the U.S. from elsewhere and you're not protected by, you don't have legal protections, mm-hmm. you don't harm the economy in the sense that these, like, farms now get to hire people who aren't protected by the government, which is, like, so totally fucked up, um, right? But, like, well, at the not same, where I was going with it, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, but, like, worst case scenario, you have people who are unjustly being exploited by the government, but that needs more labor output for mm-hmm. these 
No, exactly. Farms. There's the thing is that yeah. like immigrants, they they increase labor supply, right? They're competing for jobs, but they also they increase eat. exactly. They, they also increase they also increase labor demand yeah. because they buy yeah. services, etc. And then like when you look at the labor supply specifically, they aren't generally competing for the same jobs as yeah. native-born workers, right? Yeah, yeah like, like the the know, informal economy mm-hmm. alone is a huge contributor yeah. to the economy mm-hmm. as large. But yeah, also, like, like would would it would a would an American like re, like born and raised in America would like would you want to you would you yeah. want to do the kind of shit that yeah. like exactly? But, but the comparative is not like immigrants doing uh, farming potatoes versus like Americans farming <laughs> potatoes, but more like Americans using like a machinery to farm potatoes more efficiently <laughs> as opposed to hiring lower skilled people whom you can pay less. If that was possible, they would have already done it. The like capital just moves towards lowering mm. its cost as much. And right now mm. it is unfortunately cheaper to underpay abused workers than it is to, to automate. automate. I wouldn't say that's unfortunate though, because when these people come to the US, they're massively improving their living standards four or five times, even working for sub-minimum wage. Like that's why they send tons of money and remittances back to their countries mm. is because they find a way to live on a, like what would we con- we would consider a low living standard and still like live much better lives than if they were back on their subsistence farm mm. in Guatemala barely getting enough calories, you know, like every day to live. I mean, I would say that, I would say that regardless of the, the like actual, of, well, okay. Regardless of the comparative of that, it is better to be exploited by the government here than to be exploited by the government there. It is still bad <laughs> and regrettable that they are exploited by the government. Generally. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. That's unfortunate. Yes. Like, yeah. It's like, of course it's unfortunate that they can't like get paid the minimum wage and like have labor protections and live a good life, et cetera. I'm just saying like, even in the shitty status quo, it's still much better for it's them. Like better, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like that's why they're coming here in the first place. It's just like what I was trying to say earlier, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a reason that they're coming to farm in the US and not in um in Costa Rica. It's mm-hmm. because the US has a big agriculture industry that can hire these people and pay them like wages that they are like much higher than in their home countries. A very heavily yeah. subsidized agricultural mm-hmm. industry that few other countries. Oh can yeah, afford. yeah, that's also true. Mm-hmm. Massively um, subsidized. Yeah, lots of farm subsidies. Yeah, one of the few political talking points that actually turns out to be true is that you know immigrants do a lot of jobs that Americans just mm-hmm. don't want to do. Uh, there was this a uh, working paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so uh, there was this uh, paper that looked at the uh, massive uh, deportation. Uh, program under the Eisenhower administration, and so there that uh, significantly uh, reduced the uh, the size of the agricultural workforce, and so even there, yeah, in the United States, so uh, it was sold as this program that would increase employment and increase wages, but we saw uh, unemployment uh, and wages fall because uh, the agricultural output just wasn't being met there. And uh, the same uh, holds true today. So yeah, it, like in Alabama, like, yeah. do you remember? Um, like not, I don't know when it was exactly, but Alabama basically kicked out. Oh no, no, they made a law where um, uh, like the children of undocumented immigrants weren't allowed to like go to. <gasps> oh, excuse me. Oh no, no, I got it wrong again. They, they made it illegal to provide any services to undocumented immigrants. Right. So if you're renting a house you're renting a car, you're selling food, whatever, you're now um, legally liable for fines or worse from the government. And because of that, like uh, a ton of immigrants just packed up and left, right? Whack. And hmm? Whack. Yeah, yeah, really bad. And also the like ones that stayed, their kids stopped going to American schools, which if you think about it, like a lot of those kids are probably American citizens. They might've been born on this side of the border 
or like even if they aren't that they might be like DACA recipients they are basically culturally American have American accents speak perfect English like Americans in all but name and they're all of a sudden not being uh, educated uh, they might not like graduate high school because of that in the end so that's like a really bad policy but but regardless of that like all those farms that were hiring undocumented immigrants, they didn't really start hiring Americans because Americans don't want to do that terrible work with no air conditioning out in the, out in the fields in the summer, right? Like there's what's called labor market segmentation where people, like they have preferences for certain jobs, right? Like if you're a farmer in Guatemala, then you don't really mind working outside in the heat that much compared to an American who wants to work in like an air conditioned pizza place or something. <laughs> um which right. is not to say that that's like that's, a preference, mm -hmm. but rather that like just like the climate, the climate, <laughs> just getting used to the climate is like difficult. Bad. Yeah, Versus right. if you grew up in air conditioning your entire life. Yeah, exactly. But that's why those jobs weren't being filled by Americans and they had to fill them with prison labor, which if you look at <laughs> Yikes. prison labor in Alabama. That's <laughs> like, <was> pretty bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like that was a case of the government basically kicking out immigrants and American workers didn't suddenly get raises because they didn't want to do the jobs that the immigrants were doing in the first place. But um, I think we I think we've done immigration enough. Have we? Anybody want to say anything more about this? I think one of the key points that like we can probably emphasize a little bit more is like this idea that. Um, not, not only that, like, these jobs are jobs that, like, your quote-unquote, like, average American, like, wouldn't want to do, but rather that immigrants, regardless of documented or undocumented, regardless of documentation status, do contribute in the sense that they also become consumers in our economy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, like, really important that no one ever really talks about either. Um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it offsets any, like... It offsets any, for yeah. wages, essentially. And, like, any other costs that might incur, because they're also buying things, mm -hmm. renting things, and so forth. Yeah. And if we were able to, like, legitimize that in, in a way where they're protected, they would be better able to be consumers in our economy. Especially if you look at places where there just aren't enough people, like Metro Detroit, where I grew up, or you could say in Rochester, where we are now. Like, there's all kinds of abandoned buildings. Like 90% of Canada. <laughs> 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 well, we'll get to that later, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, if you just look at those, like industrial cities that got hollowed out um, when industrialization declined, like that increased labor demand that basically translates into less crime, more tax dollars. Yeah. Like, like you just have massively positive economic effects that way outweigh any labor supply effects. Um, like in really, they could really revive those areas. Like there's a whole, um, it's called like Mexican town in Detroit. And like, it's of course like a bunch of recent immigrants, right? And if those people weren't there in that part of Detroit, Detroit would be in even even worse state right now. Mm -hmm. You would have more crime, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I, th I think that we're good with immigration now. Um, then next I wanted to talk about uh, climate change. Uh, what, what did I? Oh yeah, yeah. So we like recently had um, that Hurricane Dorian. It was a category five, one of the biggest ever to hit Alabama. Um, Oh, Alabama. <laughs> he said Alabama. I fucking said it. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, I swear it was because we were talking about Alabama earlier. <laughs> but we, the we southeast could, coast of the United States. <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> we, oh my yeah. God. All right. So, like, the biggest question I have about like mm. the climate change debate is that how everybody talks about like whether the global warming is real or not, like human cause or not. <laughs> fake. <laughs> <laughs> fake. Yeah, and then. When, if the objective is to like reduce greenhouse emissions and reduce like emissions of harmful chemicals, then why wouldn't we talk about the health effects of those chemicals on people? So like if you have a coal plant as opposed to a solar panel plant, mm -hmm. then people who live in that town are 
worse off in health. And it's probably like some like everybody across the spectrum could agree from like a Republican to a Democrat. Yeah. In the sense like yeah. you probably don't want to like poison people with coal plant emissions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I actually I, Oh, you can go. Or I think it's really silly when people are like, oh, is climate change real? Like, I, honestly, regardless of whether or not it, like, I personally, like, I think it's real. I'm pretty sure it's real. But, like, regardless <laughs> of whether or not you think it's real, the fact is, is that we're all kind of fucked right now, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, seriously, like, would you want to be, like, in a traffic jam and, like, in packed Beijing on, like, the most, <laughs> the hottest <laughs> afternoon and, no. like, seeing in traffic jam, like, with diesel cars as opposed to, like, all oh, Teslas. Yeah. Like, exactly. like, to address oh, Mike, Mike. getting in Teslas. <laughs> <laughs> to address Mike's concern, first of all, if you look at the people who support things like the pipeline in Canada, like the Northwest, when they're transporting oil mm-hmm. and doubling their capacity, the people who would benefit from that are people who migrate to that oil field, work there, but their family lives somewhere else. So they don't directly face the effect of any leak within that area because their family is somewhere else, much safer. Well, they themselves or, would be taking the cost. I'm, I'm saying like if there is a pollution event where a it's lake, an yeah, or where a lake gets a ton of oil just dumped into it from the pipeline, mm-hmm. they won't ever face. Like they're not getting the drinking water from that lake. Yeah, they're yeah. they're not facing that harm. But I wasn't talking about like pipe. Burst and why not? I was talking about like literally like coal plants, or, like cars. So, like, yeah, and I was getting emissions. to that one yeah. too. Like even sure. when there's localized effect, to many of these people, the alternative is just the hollowing out that Kevin was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. where the jobs are just flying off. There's no livelihoods. The entire neighborhoods are in decay and disarray. Are you they would about? they would rather take a factory that creates pollution but gives them some livelihood over um, a factory that employs less people or a factory that um doesn't employ as much economic output yeah. in that area. Like they're willing to sacrifice lung disease, pollution, etc. because yeah. their areas are so like economically fucked in the first place. Like in Detroit mm-hmm. specifically, there's like um when you're on the freeway going to the airport, there's a specific part of the highway where there's like um I think in some kind of oil refinery and it just smells like awful. Even in your car you can tell like that there's all kinds of pollution going on there and like Detroit can't really get rid of that because it's already so hollowed out economically. And that's even worse somewhere like West Virginia or Eastern Kentucky, where the only industry left is the coal industry. So people are willing to sacrifice like um, black lung, water pollution, all kinds of terrible things just because like they don't want that coal mine to leave. Right. Um, I think, I don't remember who said this, um, but there was a discussion that we had like a long time ago about how sometimes like for economic development to take place, it is necessary to pollute. And yeah. I think that discussion has been really interesting to think about in the context of climate change. Yeah, I think that would be more true like in the past, like when um, economies were just starting to grow out of like early industrialization into mm-hmm. say like the 50s kind of thing where like you've got your traditional heavy industry um like in, I read in Chattanooga, there was this like army explosive plant and it would just like, it would create pollution so intense that like, if you put like, you know how they used to put in like milk in glass bottles and put it oh. on your door, like, <laughs> like the pollution would just cake onto that, those bottles. Like, but that's not really necessary anymore, I think, because like the economy just like, not for any reason in particular, it's turned like into a more green um, like it's easier to have more green industry, less pollution, and still have economic development. Right? I think it's also that like now that we have the technology to actually have mm-hmm. well, first like solar panels exist now, and then and they're getting cheaper every day. Yeah, they're getting yeah. Yes. 
So I think that makes it a little bit more profitable to be green. Do they still have door to door milk salesmen? That should be nesting Amazon gets into. Door to door milk delivery from real cows, Amazon cows. <laughs> Um, oh, actually, that reminds me. Um, when we're talking about like cheap solar panels or cheap wind energy, um, something that I think a lot of people like on the left who care about climate change miss is that like we really can't just rely on like the traditional renewable energy, um, especially wind and solar. Let's go mm-hmm. nuclear. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, no, no. Exactly. Like I think that's really important because like even Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are. Uh, they said that, like, in their climate plans, they would try to shut down nuclear plants by either 2030 or 2050, which, either way, that's a really bad idea. Like, 2030 would be even worse. I, I really don't understand why people mm-hmm. fear the nuclear plant as a thing. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. sure, like, nuclear meltdowns are a thing, but, like... No, that's it. No, that's, oh, is that there's, literally yeah, There's mm-hmm. that Three Mile Island, Chernobyl... Um, Fukushima. Yeah, all the Mike. nice dates in world <laughs> history. All yeah, all the best, right? all the best tourist vacations. I mean, Come on. I remember, yeah. I remember when I was still an engineer, lol. Um, yeah. Like we, we were looking at designs for um, uh, what is it called? It's like a pebble bed reactor. Um, is that like thorium? N- well, it doesn't doesn't really matter necessarily, but basically, it's set up in a way where the 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 core of it is a bunch of pebbles, and if anything were to go wrong, you would just drop one of them, and then the chain reaction would stop. Like the reaction yeah. would just immediately. There's, there's no AZ five button to blow up the reactor. <laughs> right. Well, because like the thing is, is that what we what I think what most nuclear plants are doing currently is they have like rods mm-hmm. instead of this like pebble bed thing. Well, like okay, like besides the point, but like that would make things a lot safer. Right? Yeah. Okay, but in terms of deaths. Nuclear kills less people than yeah, the other yeah, forms of energy Especially coal. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the issue is that like, coal pollution can just stop at one. However, if we, for example, like spew some nuclear fuel next to the third mile island, it will be there for like millions of years. Yeah. And right. I feel that's the calculus. But um, it's like, what is the likelihood of that ever happening? If we were to like It's have... small, but the consequences are pretty large. No, we're, we're getting better and better at nuclear waste containment, refinement, mm-hmm. um, cleaning right. up. I think um, it's also important that the nuclear waste from, say, a nuclear power plant is generally not, like, very highly enriched uh, to the point where it could, like, produce, I don't know, nu- like, nuclear bomb levels, levels of radiation. Yeah, so if you look at even um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like, that got nuked in 1945, like, the areas that got nuked are basically habitable now. Like, there might be mm-hmm. somewhat elevated risk of cancer, but, like... Um, it's basically manageable, right? Like people still want to live there regardless of the radiation because those bombs were very early. They like, um, they were still in the um, kilotons. They weren't megaton bombs. Mm-hmm. Like the radiation wasn't very intense because the like, um, like they weren't that powerful. And that's yeah. basically- Not SAR this... bomba levels. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, like Vic Americans. Like, I feel like you're more likely to get mm-hmm. cancer from eating the heavily processed American diet than you are. <laughs> 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 We'll um, get back to you on that. I want to play devil's advocate again. So, so, um, so why do you guys think that we need to um, like keep nuclear plants or, I don't know, maybe invest more in nuclear versus just using those renewables now that the renewables are basically like cost competitive with coal or um, natural gas plants um, and cheaper, at least in the near term, than um, like nuclear? Why do we need to keep nuclear plants? I so mean, in terms of cost per kilowatt mm-hmm. hour, mm-hmm. nuclear is very, very good. So 
solar panels break, solar panels need replacing and all that. Solar panels need a whole team of people and so on and so forth. And you need a lot of surface area and not yeah. every place has the same output, whether it's for solar or wind or geothermal is even more rare. So all of them are very limited. So if you're on upstate New York and, and you're trying to build um, a, like a 200 farm. acre solar farm, you, There's not that much radi like solar radiation in the yeah, first place. And, and land prices are so high that you can't afford to buy all yeah. that land to cover it with solar panels. Especially in excuse me, a place like California where like housing prices are super high because yeah, yeah. Like, oh my God. the land land is literally Imagine scarce. building a solar farm <laughs> in the Bay Area. <laughs> like um like land prices are a big factor, especially when say like California is basically one of the best places you can build solar plants in the first place. But mm -hmm. um, so it's like, why why are nuclear plants gonna be more uh, like cheap and clean specifically in the long run though, right? If we like right now tried to replace all our coal plants, why would we have to do it with nuclear versus wind and solar? Because once we get helium running, once we get fusion. Yeah, once we get I mean, even, even without that though, like. Right now, with current technology, like, fission, like oh. nuclear fission as a power. Like no, right I mean, now, no, I mean, so like, why do we need? Uh, why do we need? Let me, let me, let me just say it, right? Mm -hmm. So like, nuclear works all the time, right? It doesn't shut off at night or when the wind isn't blowing, and that's really important because like power demand is constant. Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's lower at night than in the day, you could say, but. If the power goes out, people are really pissed. Like your food batteries spoils. are very expensive. Yeah, yeah, for, exactly. So you need the huge batteries mm -hmm. for solar and wind. Yeah, exactly. The the problem is that like storage is so expensive for um for energy, mm -hmm. um like that makes it really hard to just use traditional renewables when you need to have po constant power demand. So that makes like nuclear's ability to just turn on and off like coal or gas really important. And um, power has to deal with spikes. So the morning spike in uses, mm -hmm. everyone wakes up and turns on their microwave and whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's also true. Like yeah. um, nuclear can respond to spikes in power demand in a way that you really can't if you just have wind and solar. Like you would have to have mm -hmm. massive areas covered with these things just to meet power demand, let alone to deal with like power spikes. Yeah, so the issue with wind and solar, as I understand what you're saying, is that mm -hmm. they depend on nature and nature is often unreliable yeah. to give mm -hmm. that energy. Um, I mean, I think there are other green like things that are neither nuclear nor wind nor solar, e.g. like if we were to like investigate and invest in like tidal energy, like the tides don't stop, right? Um, what if they're not on the coast? I mean, that's... Right, but then you have like a ton yeah. of issues, like how are you going to get yeah. that power back and like all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And um, like that's only really at two times a day, right? Where you have like peak tidal energy, I right. guess. Um, Alternatively, what if we just invest in everything? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that like where we need to invest in specific things. I'm just saying that like I think the stigma against nuclear is really harmful if we want yeah. to like really reduce carbon emissions. Like um, France, like a lot of people talk about nuclear is like really expensive upfront, which is true. Like the initial capital investment is a lot bigger for a nuclear plant than say a coal plant because you have to be extra sure that that plant's safe, right? Mm -hmm. So that takes a lot of money to inspect it. But low key, um, like that's it. what like the government is for. Yeah, exactly. To build it to like high standards. Um, but like France in the 80s or so, or in the 70s, they basically did what we need to do and they replaced all of their coal and gas plants, or at least a lot of them with nuclear plants in mm. like, during that time period, their carbon emissions fell faster than any country on on Earth, um, and now they have exceptionally low exceptionally low carbon emissions, like within Europe, because instead of like what Germany is doing with uh, just 
burning all kinds of dirty coal. They're just using nuclear power, like for their base load, um, yeah, like for a lot of their energy. And they're actually exporting energy too, because they make so much of it with these nuclear plants. But anyway, like electricity isn't any more expensive in France mm -hmm. than in Germany. It might even be more expensive in Germany now, right? Since they shut yeah, down. Yeah, plus the, the high paying plants. jobs that a yeah. nuclear power plant makes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, that's true. But I mean, that's sort of a fringe benefit compared to like all the power that you create. Mm -hmm. I think um, if the if the stigma against nuclear power is solely from nuclear bombs, I think it's stupid for us. <laughs> <laughs> from meltdowns. Yeah. Or from, from like meltdowns, meltdowns yeah, and like meltdowns. nuclear, like, you know, explodey things. And yeah, yeah. Death, just, like mass death. Just, right? um, if you're, if you're listening to this, you should watch Chernobyl. It's really good, but um, but don't like oh, don't think that. From Kevin. <laughs> but, but don't actually go there. <laughs> Mike. You can you can watch Veritasium go there. <laughs> but don't yeah, but um, I don't think that it's like a very propagandistic um show even like, but don't like don't get the wrong impression that like oh this nu nuclear plants are just gonna like shut down. Like there's a reason that we think about those so much. It's because they're so rare. There's only Three Mile Island, um, Hiroshima, not Hiroshima, <laughs> ah, Hiroshima, no, Hiroshima um, Fukushima, Daiichi, and Chernobyl out of how many nuclear plants have been operating in the world since Thousands. 1945. Yeah, yeah exactly. Little did you know, but Hiroshima and Nagasaki was actually a U.S. aid effort to deliver nuclear plants <laughs> <laughs> in Japan. They just oh, failed. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> but on the on the stigma though, I think mm -hmm. it's across political spectrums and across mm -hmm. socioeconomic class. Yes. So um, liberals. So, I don't know if it's liberals educational and, class. It's, so. it's definitely more with liberals though. Like, yeah, because liberals have their they have this like technophobic aspect. So like, people oh, are stupid basically. <laughs> That's what they're saying. Yeah. People, I think I would say let's, let's be more more polite. People assess risks very badly. Like they think that like idiots. <laughs> Damn. Oh, God, like. Like they, they think that they're gonna die in a plane crash when really they're a hundred times more likely to die because in, in the car, car crashes. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Lol, TBT. Um, actually, going back to California, <laughs> uh, we were talking about like land prices there. Something else that people don't understand about like uh, greenhouse emissions is that they're determined like in large part just by where you live. Not only like what country you live in, like um, somebody in Costa Rica or Iceland like emits far less carbon than somebody in the US or Russia. Mm. <laughs> but also like uh, where you live in terms of being in a city or in a suburb is really important because mm. like when you're in the suburbs, you drive way more, your house is less efficient in terms of energy. You know, like because of that, if you look at the, like the data, people who live in suburbs basically um, have twice the carbon footprint compared to somebody who lives in a city. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, like even at the same level of income roughly, or even if you compare like, across different cities. This is true in Detroit, where you've, that's not a very rich city. And it's also true in the, true in the Bay Area, probably the most rich, or Manhattan. Um, yeah, but how would we actually get back to like the topic of climate mm -hmm. change, you know, like, if you don't mind specifically to like, the topic mm -hmm. Amanda mentioned about like the certain, um, you, you need to pollute to develop, and then what is like the fair um, limits of like global, like basically if we all come together as the United Nations, what is like mm -hmm. the fair line for us all to say that you should not pollute more than this line um, when we have like we United can, States or China or well, I, think, I think the point of bringing that up was to kind of just draw draw the attention to like is that even necessary like is it true that it is mm. necessary to pollute to develop and then Kevin's response to that was not necessarily not in this yeah. day yeah but um, we, we can get back to it later I just want to finish the, the point about like where you live like that's important because especially in those very high cost areas like New York City or the Bay Area 
like it's really very difficult to build like new I don't know, like city style housing, like big apartment buildings yeah. that have like a lot of transit options that are really efficient, like in terms of energy, like because of basically the zoning. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, now we are. Yeah, yeah we top. love the metro. <laughs> <laughs> like because the zoning codes are so strict, right? So like in um, San Francisco, three quarters of the city, it's illegal to build an apartment building. So because of that, it's all just single family homes. And because like demand to live there is so high, the same single family home, like mine, mine is worth, I don't know, 300,000, whatever it is. Um, that's worth 10 times as much in the Bay Area. Just and you said my Gucci shirt was a flex. <laughs> <laughs> no, living in California, living in the Bay Area is just a flex. Yeah, yeah, but I'm saying it doesn't have to be, right? Like if we could build, <laughs> like if we could allow like more housing to be built, yeah. then like not only would we have those prices fall massively to, I don't know, like Detroit levels maybe, hopefully. That'd be a good thing. Um, but then that would mean that way more people are living in cities where their carbon footprint is way less because they aren't commuting three hours to their job in the Bay Area. Yeah, it would also like help with the homelessness problem. Yeah, yeah, that too. Like, because like people without, you know, you know, it'd be great for people without homes, homes. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's really bad when people, when we don't allow them to be built because we want to inflate our housing prices, right? And I mean, that, that's like a bigger issue with the environmentalist movement, I think, is that those same people who are, like stopping any new housing from being built and then like making people drive three hours to work and emit shitloads of carbon. Yeah. Like those same people think that they're like super environmentalist heroes. Like even in California, mm -hmm. the Sierra Club, um, like they're famous for opposing any new housing development because they think that like, like their version of California is that it, like it's full and we can't have any new development because that's going to ruin my view. It's going to ruin my trees, mm. like, et cetera. How, how do you win over and pass legislation that lets you build more housing and reforms the zoning laws when you're going up against this massively established, well-funded group that not just includes the big real estate companies and realtors mm. and so on, but also just individuals who own a house that want to keep their house value up or yeah. even people in the suburbs who own yeah. who own houses in the suburbs, and would see that price fall if no longer it was no longer necessary for you to live there and commute every single day. Yeah, yeah. Like so that's... that single piece of legislation wipes out a massive amount of valuation. Um, uh, like of the people who own the homes, it does, but it creates all kinds of economic value in general because now a lot more people can work in like this area that makes tons of money, like. Even a McDonald's, it has like it pays fifteen or eighteen dollars an hour in the Bay Area, and seven dollars an hour in Arkansas. It's not because McDonald's wants to do that. It's because like demand for labor in the Bay Area is so much higher that they have to pay workers that much, or they'll just quit and move, right? Like, and that applies if you add more housing and allow more people to move there, their wages go up. Um, I mean, certainly it makes sense economically, but then the question and, then becomes mm -hmm. like which people in power do you want to rope in and convince that it also yeah. benefits them specifically? Oh, yeah, I think um, what we could do, well, not we, but like what one, what, what, what individuals could do would literally just be like, hey, hey, massive construction development company. You know what would be really dope? If you build a massive building for $2 billion, you know, like something like mm -hmm. that. It's like these construction companies would probably jump at any opportunity yeah. to like, build be, housing to be exclusively the developer of a massive property and yeah the, paid. yeah that's the thing is the developers do want to build more housing because like they just want to make money mm -hmm. right like and that's good if you get more housing but people like demonize developers um because they just think that oh there's a ceo it's, it's bad make by nature. a like, state <laughs> construction company <laughs> sell shares to all the realtors who lose, yeah. lose money from the devaluation 
Oh, that's um, that's pretty smart. No, then you then you have their bets are hedged, so no, they're making no. money regardless. Yeah. No, what I would say is that like we need to link these issues, right? Like we need to link environmentalism and climate change, especially to like the need to build more housing in mm -hmm. urban areas to expand them, like expand more transit options, to, like just so that people can live in those low carbon areas instead mm -hmm. of high carbon areas when that's not really talked about at all. Yeah. Like um, in the discourse. It seems like, like nuclear. It seems like it seems like we like the five of us mostly mm -hmm. agree that, you know, we should be linking all of these issues. What's your take yeah. on like people who are like, I'm saving the environment by being a vegan and living <laughs> off the grid and like being in my house in the middle of the woods and having solar panels and satellite internet. Like if they're off the grid, mm -hmm. how are they so annoying on Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> satellite internet means Twitter access. Uh, that's true. <laughs> <It's evil>. um, <laughs> how are they getting you energy? Like solar panels. They, they that's why solar, they solar energy is bad. <laughs> solar energy is bad because they let other people annoy me on Facebook. <laughs> Damn. Um, no, I, it's a it's a shift of blame. Just a massive shift of blame from mm -hmm. the main source of pollution, the main source of carbon emissions, the main source of greenhouse gases, which are capital, which are landowners, which are the massive corporations that are polluting the world in the first place and getting mm -hmm. away with it. Because they lobby left, right, and center to to pay a minuscule amount of fines in proportion to the massive amount of profits yeah. they make. Yeah, like um, Exxon Mobil, they love it when liberals just talk about how you need to ban plastic straws. Oh, I don't have mine with me. <laughs> um, and how you need to, use how you, need to, you have to be a yeah. vegan. And oh, oh, and especially when you when they tell you, oh, you can't have kids because kids contribute to car to climate change. Like, which is just a fundamentally mm -hmm. Malthusian viewpoint that, like, oh, when, if we eliminated humanity, then we wouldn't have carbon emissions. Like, like I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's so, why we need nuclear energy. Yeah. So, so climate change. <laughs> so the issue isn't that being a vegan is bad because yeah. it is yeah, a like good whatever. thing. It's it's objectively and the ethical thing to do. You reduce suffering in the world. You reduce suffering in the food chain. And the like supply chain that leads to the food getting on your table. I guess, but I suffer if I don't get my biscuit from Dino. Mm. <laughs> but the thing is that it comes at a cost. Like it, it unfortunately now is a either or. So after someone makes a lifestyle change, they no longer feel that guilt and that need to push mm. for political change on a larger yeah, scale. I feel like we really should feel point. constantly guilty about climate change. <laughs> I no, mean, no, I don't but that's so. the thing. So if you constantly guilt people, it just mm -hmm. isn't effective. Ask any Mormon. So, <laughs> so you have to, at some point, people, people tune you out. People go through all their mental gymnastics. They make up internal narratives that excuse them or blame others or mm -hmm. have some kind of defeatist that, oh, well, if we're all going to die, might as well you know, live my life as it is. If there won't be a next generation, why do I care? about saving the environment. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's a that's a very common viewpoint. And many people, yeah. especially as climate activists get more and more extreme, more and more apocalyptic, like yeah. right. extinction rebellion and so on, mm -hmm. where they it becomes less about, hey, let's save the planet, um, from a metaphorical phrase of hey, let's save the planet to, to we really need to save the planet. I mean it's the only one we have. Blah, I mean blah. we do, but like um like the world specifically that's really not going to end like the cretaceous when we had dinosaurs it was way hotter than any climate change like projections um like would be like the world is going to be fine regardless it's human civilization that's in danger if we like just do nothing to stop pollution 
Like that's something else. Yeah, and, and two um, humans. Humans of the world. So yeah. if um, humans are going down, then our world is crumbling around us. Mm-hmm. So the issue is that people feel pushed to do something and it is infinitely easier to switch out your straw to a, and buy a metal <laughs> oh, straw. Absolutely. Which would actually massively reduce carbon emissions. Right? I should yeah. put their 10 seconds Yeah, we got 10 seconds. Um... Uh, I can stop it there. Um, do you guys? Let, yeah, we're, we're going again. So um, let's keep cu- talking. And we're back, back at this. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> back. back. The best words podcast. Best words. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is that actually what it's called? I, I think I might call it that. That's um, so funny. <laughs> like my 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 parents would laugh at that. I know. <laughs> just any Trump thing, like um, whatever yeah. Trump does, they're like they're the kind of liberals that. Um, they, they would impeach him over the Sharpie thing, like, no! especially my mom. She she might be listening to this, but whatever. So about, hi, so hi, mom. Change. <laughs> yeah, back to climate yes, change. Yeah, hi, Kevin's mom. So, so how is it that there's people who spend a lot of personal time and energy mm. onto pushing other people to adopt lifestyle changes? Or, or like Kamala Harris on the CNN town hall, she said that we need to ban plastic straws. Yeah, and so <laughs> on, right? So there's this existing mass of activists, mm. like Greenpeace, um, Extinction Rebellion, Extinction Rebellion, and so on. How is it that they're not primarily leftists or primarily political activists, but primarily environmental activists first? Yeah, so when we say that we need one ban plastic straws, like plastic bags, <laughs> we also need to understand that, like, it's not only about climate change, it's also about, like, those pictures of turtles in with mm-hmm. plastic straws yeah, and yeah. plastic bags. So at this point, they might as well only care about turtles and be like, yeah, screw humanity, but I want turtles to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, turtles to yeah, I mean even, even, like, with the turtle thing, like, if you're just throwing a plastic straw away, it would have, they, you would have to specifically like truck it to the ocean (laughs) you would have to throw that like bunch of garbage in the ocean for the turtle to die which is not really (laughs) okay okay (laughs) 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 i imagine some like far-right conservative driving to like pick up truck with straws to the ocean Uh, like these of liberals mark my words that's what's gonna happen like you know coal rolling is like people modify their trucks so they just just like spit out tons of like nasty fucking pollution. Did like, not know that's a thing. Just to just yeah. to make what, how have you not heard of that? That's <laughs> but no, no, no. What's the like, call? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like people already like modify their trucks to pollute more just to make liberals mad. Like just what, like fuck y'all. Yeah, yeah, like what happens when plastic straw bands become like oh, the, no. the normal position oh, of the, their liberals? The, the plastic straws sold by Trump. Yeah, that too. Yeah, that's a quintessential. <laughs> like, yeah, like Trump was selling plastic straws at a sixty times markup. Just because he knew that it would get media attention because now, like, liberals want to ban plastic straws. So, therefore, if you buy plastic straws, you're pissing off the liberals. You're triggering, yeah, you're triggering the, triggering the libs, like, mm. and so they can make money off of that. But but even, like, what I was talking about, the plastic straws, is most of them are just going to landfills like any other trash is. Like, there's no reason in particular that they need to go in the ocean. Like, we don't need to ban plastic straws. We just need to put them on land in places where nobody, nobody lives and nobody's harmed. Like, that's the real solution, not banning plastic straws and antagonizing people. Um, and, um, oh, worse, you were talking about, like, the harms to the next generation. I think that's also important when people are talking about, like, oh, if you don't have a kid, you're not, like, you're helping climate change, which, I mean, regardless of the Malthusian stuff, like, um, 
I think it would be good if you expanded on like why that makes people less worried about it because all of a sudden like they don't have to care about the next generation because it's like it's not there anymore, right? Like um Yeah. On it's a, it's a weird paradox mm-hmm. where on the one hand it is true that if you don't have a kid, there's like huge carbon footprint that you're wiping off. And just in terms of lifestyle changes, you could go vegan, you could take three less transatlantic cruises a year. And so taking on. three transatlantic well, cruises a year. You could do all those things combined. People but... who wear Gucci t-shirts. <laughs> People who are clouded, that's what it is. And all of that combined would still be less than the carbon footprint of just you having an extra child. Mm-hmm. Over the course of their lifetime, the amount of emissions that they will make far offsets all of the lifestyle changes that you otherwise could do. Mm-hmm. So oh, oh. while that is true, not having a kid takes you out of having a stake in the future of the world where you and things that you directly care about, let's say your parents mm-hmm. probably die before you and say so you don't have any kids. So there's no one that you directly care about on a family and blood basis yeah. to survive in a world that's, that might be unlivable in the future. You mm-hmm. have to wear like space yeah, helmets. Because some people are going to have kids, especially like people mm-hmm. in poor countries who like, have more kids in the first place but also are going to feel more effects from climate change mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they can't afford to build like seawalls um mm-hmm. it's harder for them for them to move so it's like cost of cost of child's pollution to earth cost of having a stake yeah. in the future yeah mm-hmm. and oh and now i remember why i was trying to look immigration to this it's because like if you move from a place like costa rica or haiti or bangladesh to the united states your carbon emissions do go up a lot because mm-hmm. like just living in the United States, you emit more carbon um, either through your diet or through using cars, et cetera. Like just because you're in a more economically developed country, like carbon emissions do go up with economic development. So like if you're, if you think that you like have to not have kids to stop climate change, then logically you also have to stop immigration from poor countries because that like, if you, you're, you, if you're using that logic, that also like increases carbon emissions even though when people come to the U.S. from poor countries, their standard of living goes up immensely. Their, like, um, quality of life is way better. They aren't, like, on the verge of starvation or living, like, working shitty jobs for almost no pay. And the second link is that climate will be the single biggest cause of refugees and immigration in in the very near future. So even the way that we're handling Mm -hmm. the refugee crisis now is absolutely awful. So Mm -hmm. how are we going to handle a crisis 10 times the size? The global climate crisis. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I wanted to talk about next, actually, is like when people talk about these apocalyptic scenarios of like, oh, hum, hum, let's say human civilization is like going to end because of climate change. Like just yesterday, I saw an article in The New Yorker where this not this guy isn't an economist. He isn't a scientist. He's like an English major. No, nothing against English majors, but they're not like generally experts on climate change. He said that um, like, uh, oh, he said that like there's no hope. We're already like gonna end the world and end human civilization just with the emissions that we already have, and like because we haven't been able to put them down fast enough, like uh, it's just the end of the world is certain, and like you have to lose all hope because like the world's just gonna end. Black and, like, pill. Yeah, yeah, pretty much black pill. And like I feel like that like viewpoint is just gaining a lot of strength like within the climate change movement. Um, yeah, why not? It absolves you of having to do anything. Yeah, you, oh, you, yeah. Can, you can live <laughs> it's the crazy. exact same life that you're living now and not have to worry mm-hmm. about things. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't even think of that. But I, I was thinking more of like, um, it's just not true. Like, mm. There's um, so much we can do. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, even if we, 
like uh, let's say it's the worst case scenario and we just keep polluting as much as possible even then human civilization i just really doubt it's going to end because of like what climate change does specifically like it raises sea levels and um raises temperatures right but the thing is that there's not like a fixed supply of land on earth there's a ton of land in say the north of canada or siberia or scandinavia that's right now uninhabitable mm -hmm. you can't use it for agriculture you can't use it for anything because it's too cold like when the climate warms that land does become available well right? but then you also have like climate issues that are related to a raise in temperature that are more mm -hmm. like global temp not sorry not global temperature global like weather patterns start shifting yeah. so then all the currently habit habited mm -hmm. The places where people live yeah. now yeah. <laughs> are like subject to worse storms, more frequent flooding, like all of these issues mm -hmm. that will force people to have to move up. And like, mm -hmm. we're going to lose a, a lot of lives. Yeah. In, in, in terms of the closest we've come to actual extinction, there was a great narrowing in the prehistoric age where the population of Homo sapiens became the lowest has ever been um, from from was that, um, <laughs> so at, and at that time there was I'm not I don't want to ballpark how many there were but mm -hmm. let's just say six thousand human beings yeah were left and the number kept on decreasing but was, we bounced back from that this is way yeah. back was that was that because there was like a little ice age or something yeah I believe um, so something like that okay. and the second would be a, like the black death or the plague. Mm -hmm. So these oh, that's, things. I want to do a whole podcast on that, but yeah. keep going. Mm -hmm. So um, we've faced situations where every other person next to you was falling and dying, but mm -hmm. we still continued regardless. Yeah, you brought up um like climate migration. Wait, was it you or you? I don't know. Whatever. What um, so like climate Someone. migration specifically is really important because like when there's I don't know a flood in Bangladesh and people have to move, like that migration is basically just a really good thing. Like if you move from Bangladesh to a rich country, you're going to improve your standard of living like a ton, regardless of like what happened back home. Um, and like, that's a major part of what we need to do to adapt to the like climate crisis is that we need to liberalize immigration laws and allow people to move. Like Jose, you remember that paper about New Orleans? Hold on, can you, can you use a different example? Cause like, how would they get to the US mm -hmm. from Bangladesh? The same way you did. An airplane? <laughs> Exactly. Like, like, like you, if you're a climate yeah. refugee in Myanmar, you would go to Bangladesh. And if you're a climate refugee in Bangladesh, you would probably go to India or Pakistan. Right. I mean, I mean, I'm talking about like in the grand space of things over or decades China. and decades. Yeah, yeah I mean, I the mean, most the most of the victims aren't rich enough in the first place to afford going to a different uh, country, different continent across mm -hmm. the world. I think the way it actually looks like in the real world is people's homes being flooded. And, and this regularly happens every time there's a hurricane, every, every time there's floods mm -hmm. in Bangladesh. Mass amounts of people are left without all their lifelong belongings and they have to start over from scratch in the place they are or they move to mostly internally. So mm -hmm. they move to like the capital or they move to Chittagong or they move to other like major cities because they have no longer have any life savings because they're all washed away yeah. quite literally. Um, so I think it looks like either massive internal migration or localized migration to neighboring countries. Yeah, but I'm just saying that like, uh, yeah, sure, a big major barrier, barrier to say moving to the US is cost, buying a plane ticket, whatever. But then like, there's also the massive barrier of just the immigration system as it is. Mm -hmm. Like you're able to move here because you're a student. 
Um, like if you're just a shop owner in Dhaka and you want to move to the U.S. for whatever reason, it's very hard for you to do that unless you have family here because our immigration system is so strict, right? Like even mm -hmm. if you can afford a plane ticket and you, I don't know, maybe you want to start a business, whatever, you just want to come to the U.S., you're not allowed to because of the immigration system. And that gets really important if that, that shop that this guy owns in Bangladesh gets flooded and he has to move, like it's really important that the U.S. open its borders. That really, I think you're mixing. I think you're mixing asylum with immigration. Um, so if if you're forced to move because your business died and you have no livelihood for yourself anymore, I think you're. It's a form of economic asylum that you're seeking from a more developed country. Yeah, I feel like there's like a big question of like if you're a, like economic refugee or like asylum seeker, then why in the same moving to the U.S. when like sea level rise will probably like also like harm us in a major way what why wouldn't he move to like china or like the upper like the upper part of asia well, sea level rise is going to harm any country with a coastline but like the sea level rise land in the u.s hmm? i mean there's still like a shitload of land in the u.s is the thing right like, yeah but also like the rise rise temperatures it probably will be like worse in the u.s than ever um, florida well there's a thing though is that the temperature rise in itself isn't necessarily going to cause that much harm because there's already massive temperature differences across the globe. And that means that people develop like different tolerances to temperature, right? Like somebody who lives in Phoenix can take 110 degree heat because they well, feel it regularly. So, so the issue with temperature isn't like the actual experience of living in a hotter place, but rather like temperature... Affects agriculture. Affects yeah, weather. Effect, mm -hmm. yeah, affects weather. And that, that weather effect is something that like we've never... Uh, like we've probably seen it before, but it's like if 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 something is two degrees hotter and you live in like Rochester and like there's you know there's there's obviously like Lake Ontario up there, right? Mm -hmm. Like to have a two temperature degree difference is to say that our winters are going to be much much colder. Our blizzards are going to be much much worse. Uh, you want to say why? Like if it's two degrees hotter, why are we going to have colder winters? Oh man. Like it's true. Like I think that like the climate would get more extreme, but like science. I think I think the <laughs> I think the bigger point is the crops that you would okay. grow for food yeah. before now just fail to grow. Interstellar. Yeah. Interstellar. <laughs> <laughs> um, Great movie. Yeah, the thing with yeah. that though is that right, like the like there are areas right now that are too cold to grow crops, and there are areas that are too hot to grow crops. Like. I think a big oh, part. So are of, you yeah. saying that instead of growing it where they are now, we would mm -hmm. just grow them elsewhere? Yeah, exactly. Like climate change is basically a marginal phenomenon over a long time. I don't know if that's how like soil nutrition works, though. Yeah, like, plus if we're talking about the like, global warming, we're talking not on, not only about rising like in average temperatures, but also about like a change in extremes. Meaning that if it's hmm. not like okay, it will it will be like the average will, in Phoenix will be not one hundred and ten, but one hundred and twelve. But the extreme is now one turned into fifty, and everything like dies. I don't. On I don't think that's gonna happen from a two degree rise. Um, maybe, maybe it would be one hundred ten or one hundred thirty, but I don't think it would be like that. Okay, but just from armchair <laughs> climatology aside, <laughs> the, called out. <laughs> the take home is. No, I mean, my my point is does. just like the effects of climate change aren't uniform. Some areas are going to become more habitable. Some are going to become less habitable. And a big part of like mitigating climate change is that we need to make it easier to move to those more habitable yes. places. Mm -hmm. I agree that we like, ought to make it easier to move because that'll be what happens. My concern is that I have, like I personally as a non-climate scientist have no idea whether or not things are going to be more habitable 
at the same rate that things are becoming less habitable. Like what if what if we have like say we have 50% we're at 50% of habitable things. Mm. Let's say habitable things shrink by 20% and unhabitable things shrink by 5%. Okay, well now we have 15% less habitable things. Yeah. Also um, it's kind yeah, of like things like the effect on fish stocks as oceans become more and more acidic from the carbon dioxide in the air. So no matter where you are on the world, mm -hmm. if you if you eat seafood at all, then your food supply is going to be drastically lower. So it's not just the habitable places, but what you need to, to inhabit, inhabit that place <laughs> are significantly. I totally increased. forgot about ocean acidification, <laughs> but now that you brought that up, that's mm. probably also well, not probably. That's definitely also a huge problem. Like there's so much carbon that is in the ocean stored, all of that gets released beyond a certain like water temperature level, right? That exponentiates all of the other changes that we've talked about so far. It's also um, not even though, right? Like there are some parts of the ocean that are probably more acidic than others because of the temperature and that affects the absorption of the CO2 and then how it changes into what was it, carbonic acid. The chemistry was a long time ago. Um, like even, even there though, I think that like, um, it could be mitigated somewhat because like certain areas are going to become more habitable for certain fish, even as others become less, just because like conditions that used to be like, not like something that they couldn't survive in, um, they might become more warmer, like more, oh my God, more warmer. Okay. And that's <laughs> why we should buy Greenland. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I feel like we're missing the point. Mm -hmm. Like, if climate change is happening, then we should probably try to stop it. It's supposed to be like, will we be able to like shrink the, like move the farmable land well, to some other place? I think, I think there are two two takes you can have. Is what do, what do we do to like mitigate climate change insofar as like we try to like stop climate change as much as we possibly can? Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of that, it's given that some climate change will occur or given that we like, what if we fa just completely fail to stop climate change? How will we adapt in the future? I think these two are separate yeah. questions. Okay. And you do both. Fair. Yeah, and yeah. You, you ought to do both, or else, mm -hmm. like, I don't know, like, yeah. eggs in one basket, everyone's fucked. So yeah, like, you try I mean, to improve things, but you also prepare for the worst. Yeah, yeah, I guess my point is just that, like, people totally ignore that part of it, right? That, like, both people need to be able to move easier, and, like, the places they need to move to need to be easier to move to, right? Like, it's not that easy to go to Canada or go to Alaska right now because the immigration systems there are like really difficult to get into. I don't know Canada specifically, but like in the US you have to have a family member here pretty much mm. or be a student or like have a shitload of money. Like if Alaska becomes more habitable because it's warmer, mm. we need to be able to move people there. Or be an Eastern European model. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very true. Um, Miss this right. one. All right. Uh, thank Anybody else have anything to say or um I guess like just like at all of those people that are like, oh we're fucked anyway, therefore we should live a lifestyle that is the same as whatever. I mean, if you think we're fucked already, what if you like put all of your energy into figuring out how to adapt to the world that's gonna be fucked later? Like mm -hmm. or at least like build spaceships, so like <laughs> well, you're fly away. No, but, but to directly or... appeal to the um defeatist and doom and gloom crowd. Yeah. If all you care about is yourself, it is more personally satisfying to be part of the solution than to be part of the problem. Mm -hmm. It is always going to be true. If if you spend an hour a day, once a month, volunteering somewhere or helping people in need, you physically feel better. You feel better when you wake up the next day knowing that you made a positive impact. And if you extend that to like a lifestyle choice you make or political activism you do, where when asked, 
in the future, like, oh, what did you do during <laughs> mm-hmm. the great climate crisis of the 2020s? <laughs> I did nothing and moped about it. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't make for a good campfire story. Yeah, these are not just better words. These are wholesome words from Warish. <laughs> no, it's not better words. It's the best words. He's like, oh, I know best words. words. I know words. I have the best words. <laughs> Yikes. Oh, man. You know, he does a lot of stupid shit, but, like, how are you, How else are you going to get your president to say he has the best words? Okay? You know, I'm taking a presidential rhetoric class, uh, and mm-hmm. the moment we get to Trump, I don't even know what the professor's going to even talk about. Just, like, <laughs> hence... He was saying Jimmy Bush's speech writer. Mm-hmm. Bush one. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this Good this guy. is the best words podcast signing off. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>